Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Chi-Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. You're listening to Formosa Files. I'm John Ross. I'm Eric Michael Smith. And in this episode of Formosa Files, we're looking at the last soldier of World War II. And it's not the story that you would immediately think of or the one that's the most famous. So um, the Second World War comes to an end, as we all know, on, well, in August of 1945. Hiroshima is bombed on the 6th of that month. And Nagasaki, three days later, the Soviets realize they're not going to get any war spoils if they don't uh, join in quickly. So they immediately declare war on Japan. The Red Army launches a huge push through Manchuria, an operation the history books usually call August Storm. On the 15th of August, 1945, the famous message from the emperor is heard by the Japanese people. The first time that they've heard his voice, bear in mind that he was a sacred, holy being until Mm. that moment. So he makes a radio broadcast announcing the surrender and the hostilities of World War II have officially come to a close. But clearly it's a huge mess. And just because you've signed on the dotted line doesn't mean things are over. Takes a lot of time to sort mm. things out. Yes. Uh, history books and such, uh, they need end dates, but they're a bit too neat. Mm. And the suffering continues, uh, especially with a huge conflict like uh, World War II, chaos of the uh, aftermath. Uh, something as basic as getting soldiers home and then a, a lower priority, uh, repatriating prisoners. Right. Well, a lot of the transportation has been blown up. There's a severe shortage of transportation. And countries have a shortage also of manpower. So if you a POW, you might find yourself being used as cheap labor. Mm. So that August storm offensive, uh, the Soviet uh, blitzkrieg through Manchuria, which was a Japanese-held territory since 31, that brought the Soviets a bounty of arms, industrial equipment, and and more than a half a million soldiers. So unlike on the islands in the Pacific, the soldiers in Manchuria surrendered, and uh, reportedly a lot of them also deserted uh, in droves. But the interesting thing here is that some of these were from Taiwan. Yes, they ended up in Siberia in camps, part of Stalin's uh, giant labor network. So they're working on farms, uh, construction sites. And of course, we're talking about horrific conditions, nasty weather, and many of those men did not survive. Yes. A few years later, uh, some of them start to get um, repatriated, sent back. Right, which is difficult because they're no longer Japanese subjects. So they were sent to civil war-torn China. They get stuck there mm. and then eventually back to Taiwan. Yeah. So it's, it's a common story for the war, for soldiers throughout time, years to get home after a war has officially ended. Yeah. Could be worse than a few years, actually. You've heard the stories about Japanese stragglers, right? those holdouts who hid in the hills, Mm -hmm. Micronesian islands like Guam or other places in the Philippines. Yeah, though no men uh, holding out on Taiwan as far as I know. Yeah, I haven't heard any stories like that either. However, the last documented holdout of a World War II Japanese soldier, he was actually Taiwanese and Mm -hmm. it was in Indonesia. He surrendered one week before Christmas in 1974 and returned home the next month. 1974, that's three decades of... 
uh, of what? Uh, heroic uh, holdout or neurotic madness? I, I, I don't, don't answer that. Well, let's, let's look at the details. Uh, so he was an Aborigine uh, and his name was Teruro Nakamura. I don't know how to say that. Right. Uh, he was from Taiwan's most populous indigenous group, the Amis or Ame. As for the name, it's sort of complicated. You've got Japanese uh, Nakamura, Teru or Teruro Nakamura. Aboriginal name, I've seen things. Uh, I've actually read two names, something something mm-hmm. like Atun Palalin and Sunio. Yeah. But then when he gets back to Taiwan, he found that he'd been given yet another name, the Chinese name of Li Guanghui. Perhaps we can add an Indonesian name. Uh, he spent enough time there. Yes, yeah, certainly. But you know that alphabet soup name stuff, it, it, it highlights yeah. a difficulty with reading about Taiwan. All the personal names and place names, and they're all in different languages and different spellings. Yeah, so for our straggler, our holdout, let's stick with Nakamura. It's mm. the name he said he felt most natural with. Uh, and he, he was more comfortable speaking Japanese than his native uh, Amis or, or Taiwanese. Right. Private Nakamura sailed from Kaohsiung for Indonesia with the Takasago Volunteer Unit in early 1944. Uh, the volunteer in that name is maybe not exactly accurate. They didn't formally conscript them, but let's just say they were greatly encouraged to enlist. Anyway, mm. he ends up on Morotai, a rugged island in the Moluccas, which was, uh, those used to be part of the fabled Spice Islands. It's not considered especially important, and it's garrisoned by roughly 500 Japanese troops, but General Douglas MacArthur wants to use it as a base for air and naval forces for his upcoming Philippines campaign. Q, Operation Tradewind, uh, the taking of Moratai, which involves an initial 50,000 men. He liked to do thing, things with uh, overwhelming force, MacArthur. Mm. So our soldier is not long there, and uh, the Allies capture it. The Japanese forces are decimated. Nakamura was declared missing, presumed dead, in March 45. Uh, the surviving Japanese are told to move into the hills. Uh, they're in small groups of about a dozen. So uh, still fighting on. Yeah. Is it clear in the story he's alone or in a group somewhere hiding in the jungle? Well, it's uh, it's messy. Uh, he spends time with some fellow holdouts. Then he's by himself. Uh, then he's with another group of stragglers, spends a few years with them. But he says that he had some problems. They threatened him, uh, assertions they would later deny. And he left this group around 53, 1953, and spent the next two decades at a, a spot uh, the Japanese press w- would nickname Nakamura City. This group uh, assumed he had perished. That's what they said when they were uh, uh, repatriated. They surrendered in 56. Okay, so the first group he was with, uh, he didn't get along with them. They had some sort of disagreement. They finally, they are found and repatriated. Were these folks, uh, his uh, fellow soldiers, were they Taiwanese? Uh, there were nine in total, three Japanese, including the leader. Uh, six were Taiwanese Aborigines. Which, uh, you know, it's lucky for the Japanese because yeah. Taiwanese uh, native people are very good at living off the land, uh, catching animals, hillside farming and all that. Yes, uh, the kind of guys you want uh, in this kind of tight spot. Yes. So what happened to those Taiwanese who were repatriated? 
they went to live in Japan, uh, yeah, four of them. Uh, they had it pretty difficult there, uh, readjusting, of course, a new time and place, uh, working, laboring jobs. Okay. So meanwhile, the last holdout, Nakamura, is in his mountain jungle hideout, which the press will later nickname Nakamura City. And he's using all the skills that he's learned back in his childhood, I guess, in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did some farming. Uh, he's growing sweet potatoes, uh, greens, bananas, and such. He's trapping birds, uh, the occasional wild pig, catching mm. small fish. He made nets and baskets, um, you know, did some weaving to uh, make his traps. Yeah, the Aborigines are great fighters and they can live off the land. A lot of these special forces that we have in Taiwan today, including in the ROC Marines, are from indigenous communities. So it's sort of a proud warrior tradition for them. Mm-hmm. And you can see why the Japanese recruited them. The Takasago Volunteer Unit I mentioned earlier, they were an all-Aborigine group. The total number is not exactly known. It's a couple thousand, maybe as much as 5,000. And they were trained for guerrilla fighting, tough fighters sent to the toughest areas. Yes, uh, it took a long time for the Japanese to uh, pacify them, didn't it? And uh, they were impressed by the the fighting abilities of the Aborigines. Uh, It's not really until the end of 1930 that we can say they're uh, pacified. So you're talking about after the Wuxi Rebellion that year. Yeah. And then even after that, they're not completely pacified. Things aren't totally wrapped up. Uh, maybe we can slip in a little Kaohsiung side story here. So it's 1933 in Kaohsiung, and mm-hmm. that's technically when the Aborigines are declared officially under control. There was even a big ceremony in Kaohsiung held by the Japanese for what they called the subjugation of the last barbarian in Taiwan. 1933, okay. Uh, so nearly three decades. Hmm. Even putting us, you know, put aside the uh, barbarian rhetoric, it's, it's worth celebrating. So this last quote-unquote barbarian was an elderly Bunun rebel leader called Dahu Ali. The Bunun Mm. are an indigenous people along with the Atal, the longest holdouts. So Dahu Ali had been holding out in a high mountainous area, Tamaho, called by the Japanese, about five miles as the crow flies south of Yushan, Jade Mountain. A difficult area to get to. Yeah, so they used airplanes to bomb him and his band of followers. And in a weird twist, as part of this surrender Mm -hmm. or coming in ceremony, Dahu Ali actually got to visit various places, including the Pingdong airfield from which the planes that bombed him had taken off in the mid-1920s. Okay. He's wanted for taking hits. Quite a few, I think. So the Japanese are just going to let him off? The Japanese are trying to relay a message through this case to other aboriginals that uh, they won't be punished, you know, if they if they, they turn themselves in or they sign peace treaties, essentially. Immunity for multiple deaths. Mm, okay, so it's not really subjugation or is nor surrender. No, not really. And Dahu Ali and the Bunun saw it more as like the ending of hostilities or even a reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, going back to the Indonesian island of Moratai and the holdout Nakamura, the years are going by. Why stay there hiding? Well, according to the reports that we have, he simply didn't realize that the war had ended. And this is really odd. Do you think, John, he just lost track of time somehow? 
Not at all. Uh, for each cycle of the moon, he tied a knot and a rope. He's keeping track of time. That would be a lot of knots. And he built himself an abacus. He's, he can count as much as he wants on his abacus. So I, I don't understand why he thought the war was still ongoing all these years later. Apparently, he thought the, the many planes he saw uh, overhead was evidence of uh, an ongoing war. Okay. So he's seeing frequent fighter planes and other uh, aviation passenger jets. And he thinks, whoa, all this flying must mean we're still at war. Yeah, there was an air base uh, on the island. It's still not that convincing, is it? No. But I, I, I want to look at this in more detail later, uh, after we've seen private uh, Nakamura safely home. So I read about this story, and there were reports on the island of a naked wild man living in the mountains, and the Indonesian army actually did launch a search. Yeah, uh, Indonesian Air Force. The reports are mixed up, but yeah, Air Force. But yeah, that's shorthand for what happened. Uh, If we go back to Nakamura looking up at those airplanes, while the pilots of those planes are looking down, they will see a, a small hut, very small, it's just two meters by two meters, vegetable patches um and that's odd you know in a very remote area uh no villages around no trails it stands out his hideout is in sort of a hidden uh valley a dense jungle steep cliffs on two sides completely inaccessible okay sure if i was looking down as a pilot i might go huh that's weird mm. but not really worth checking out i mean even you hear a rumor or two eh, i don't know yes it's not really worth checking out nor Normally, um, people see things all the time, don't they? Um, yes. But but one of the rumors, uh, a bit better than most, a guy claimed um, that his father, um, before he died, had told him that he had met this Nakamura chap while he was out uh, hunting boar, and they developed a relationship. He would bring salt, uh, sugar, a few things like that occasionally to him. And then when he was old, he passed this chore onto his uh, son. And then the son's getting old, and... Uh, doesn't have anyone to tell. He told the local police. Police don't really uh, really believe it, but they informed the Air Force. But they start taking it a little bit more seriously when earlier in the year in the Philippines, there is the discovery of a Japanese straggler. So the subject is on people's minds and it turns this unimaginable idea that no one's buying into more than a possibility. Yes, uh, there's been that uh, case on Guam, that's 72, and mm. then the famous one, Philippines, 74. So the authorities uh, think they should go investigate. Uh, Eric, before we started recording, I sent you a copy of the Japanese national anthem. You told me practice this, but sorry, I'm not singing it. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe we can add it as, as background. Um, it's Come on, it's just five lines. Uh, it must be one of the shortest anthems. Uh, we, we might need it. We're hunting a possible Japanese holdout. Okay, so we're going into story mode here. Okay, so um, who are we then again? We're Indonesian Air Force soldiers, okay, on the island of Moritai. We've spent three days slashing our way through jungles. It's the morning of December 18th and our party of 11, nine Air Force and two civilians, we've surrounded a clearing and a hut. Skinny wild man is there cutting wood with a knife. We advance toward him while singing the Japanese anthem. You know, it's to calm him and uh, we've been practicing. Nakamura freezes. He stands to attention, uh, looks shocked, scared. And doesn't resist. 
accounts vary. He so he's communicating with the Indonesians in Japanese. The team has a Japanese speaker, but he's not really speaking uh, anything. He's dumbstruck. I wonder what he was thinking as he heard the anthem coming into his little makeshift yeah. village there. He hasn't communicated with people for quite a long time. It takes him a while uh, to understand that the war is over and he fears for his life. The team leader uh, radios HQ, mission accomplished, and a helicopter flies him to a base. Uh, he's flown to Jakarta. Uh, I would assume for medical tests. Which he passes. Uh, the 55-year-old is basically in good health, but he catches a cold while he's at the hospital. Mm, nice irony. Okay, so it's time for repatriation. But as we alluded to before, where, right? He's an imperial subject of the empire of Japan that has now been reduced from an empire to Japan. Uh, mm. Should he be repatriated to Japan or Taiwan? As you said, the the last stragglers that they found in the 50s, they went to Japan, but what? Nakamura was given a choice. Uh, he chose his homeland. Okay. And if I were him, I guess I would be thinking about uh, back pay. That's a lot of back pay, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> okay. He's due 68,000 yen, uh, about half uh, back pay counted up until 53, 1953 when... Uh, Pension laws change. And the other half uh, was a coming home bonus. Okay. So that's a big number. But if you're not familiar with the yen, it really isn't very much in when you convert it to US dollars. And and the yen was uh, really weak then. So uh, it's even less than what you think. Uh, According to uh, the exchange rate at the time, and um, well, I've actually checked uh, press reports from that time, the sum, $227. $227 US dollars. Hmm. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I wouldn't be happy about that. But this is a, a huge media story. So mm-hmm. the fact that he's only getting $227 must have been met with, there must have been some outcry over it. Yeah, in both uh, Japan and Taiwan. Uh, Indonesia too, yeah. So the government tried to do some damage control. They uh, give him several million yen and there were private donations as well. So he's he's okay financially. He's quite comfortable. He won't need to work uh, when he gets back to uh Taiwan. Right. So the story goes, he finally returns home. He flies into Mm -hmm. Taipei and Taiwan is obviously a very different place than it was decades earlier. His wife is still alive, but she's remarried. The Taiwan government, which at that time was a one-party state under the KMT, they're not exactly laying out a welcome mat because, you know, you can understand Japan was their wartime enemy. He arrives back in Taiwan uh, the afternoon of January 8th. So, so yeah, it's low-key. Some uh, some people to meet him. Um, his wife and son. His son is... 30 but it was just like one year one year old when he left yeah like you said the uh, the wife um she's remarried she waited 10 years um after he was declared dead waiting 10 years seems reasonable i agree uh but nakamura didn't take it well so when did he find out counts vary um some are before he arrived while he's still back in indonesia some just after he turns up others a little bit after arriving he's he's on a bus um minibus i think heading to a reception at his hometown the wife tells him (laughs) he gets angry drops her off and uh drives on but uh the 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 two later reconciled they moved to a town to live together but once again 
details vary. Uh, he drops out of the public spotlight, died of lung cancer in 79. Huh. Five years, just five years after getting back home. And he's not even that old. He's 59. He seems to have drunk quite a bit, chewed quite a bit of betel nut after he got back. Uh, well, you know, making up for lost time. But uh, it's, it's arguable to say maybe he would have been better off without all that money. Yeah. Uh, the lung cancer could have been from his time in the wild. You know, uh, fires are uh, unhealthy. Yes. Yep. So Nakamura's moment of fame is relatively brief, but as we mentioned, the case got into the media, so it had a big, big impact in Japan, raising a bunch of questions about the treatment of Japanese colonial soldiers, Taiwanese veterans, their treatment, their pensions. There was that outcry over the original paltry amount that they gave him, and that had only been sorted out by their one action in this one high-profile case, but what about all the other veterans, right? And the whole process, the laws needed changing. Yes, there was a push by lawyers and academics uh, in Japan to get compensation for soldiers. There was a, an association called rather prosaically the Association for the Warm Welcome of Nakamura to Ruro. And this grew into the Association for Compensation for Taiwanese Veterans of the Imperial Army. And they reportedly had some success after a while, quite a few different campaigns and lawsuits. In 1987, there was a special law enacted, 2 million yen paid to wounded veterans, people injured in battle, or bereaved family members. Not that much. In dollars, it's about 15,000, I think, and mm -hmm. less than what the Japanese soldiers had received. Uh, the Japanese government paid out ooh, 600 billion yen to about 30,000 Taiwanese individuals. Complaints were made, though. Um, and more was offered, but turned down as insulting by the, the Taiwan government. Yeah, I've read about some complaints of some men just missing out completely. There was a time limit. Uh, applications ended in 94, and some veterans, especially indigenous ones um, living in remote areas, might not have heard about it in time. And finding the right paperwork would have been difficult for many. The case also raised some questions about colonial rule in general. As we noted, uh, there was controversy over whether he'd been conscripted or if he'd volunteered, volunteered. Yeah, for Nakamura himself, there was not really a distinction. It wasn't an important question. Uh, people were expecting him to uh, to join at the time, he says. His, his peers joined uh, the, the army. Um, so he didn't think it was um, forced. Uh, he was disinterested in this question. Uh, he didn't feel resentment about hmm. his service. Uh, he'd been doing his job, loyalty to the army, the emperor, Japan. The media wanted to portray him uh, as a victim of Japan during the war and then again um, afterward. But he wasn't playing along. The fact that uh, he was compensated and some of the other soldiers were compensated uh, does stand in contrast to the very, very controversial issue that still hasn't been settled of compensation to comfort women. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, still ongoing. So the last last soldier of World War II, it's a very fascinating story, but I'm still a bit frustrated after after going through all of these documents. 
I, I don't really understand why he held out that long. He said he's following orders, but I don't know. Was it fear? Maybe that was a big part. And his explanation about seeing airplanes, does, does that hold water? All right. The, the Americans had built uh, an airbase not that far from his um, uh, secret uh, Nakamura city. Uh, so this airbase continued to be used after the war, uh, after independence by the Indonesian Air Force. But still, yeah. So he would have he would have seen jets flying back and forth, but there wasn't any post-war fighting in that area. Actually, there was more military action uh, than just Air Force planes taking off. Uh, there was a lot of fighting there in 58. Uh, have you ever heard of the Permesta Rebellion? Nope. Okay, it's a rebel movement in East uh, Indonesia. The people are uh, unhappy with their new uh, country of Indonesia. Feels like they've replaced one colonial power, the Dutch, with another, Java. Uh, they don't like Jakarta's uh, policies. So the main hostilities took place in 58, but the guerrilla operations continued for a few years. Maratai was uh, heavily involved. The Indonesian Air Force was flying missions from there to uh, the neighboring um, North Sulawesi. That's the center of the rebellion. And then the rebels returned the favor, bombing Maratai. So he might have heard some sort of bombs going off and that would have added to the feeling of a war. But the, the the rebels, they had an air force. How were they bombing? Uh, they had aircraft and pilots supplied by the company. Huh. Uh, the company, you mean the CIA? Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, they conduct a couple of air raids um, and that's followed up. These rebels, uh, amphibious landing forces, capture Nakamura's island. Then the Indonesian military, they launched their uh, their own invasion and amphibious landing, uh, airborne troops parachuting in, and the island is retaken. Interesting. So Nakamura is really seeing a lot of, uh, hearing and seeing a lot of action. Yes, yes. Uh, there's also a Taiwan angle to the rebellion. Uh, before the CIA got involved, uh, the rebels had been getting military assistance from the ROC. Okay, so to clarify, when Indonesia became an independent country, some of the islands or parts of Indonesia were not happy with the idea of being uh, governed by Jakarta and rebelled. And the CIA aided these rebels. And the CIA connection connects to Taiwan because the Republic of China government was backing a rebel movement in Indonesia. Yes, uh, it's all very hush-hush at the time. But with uh, Indonesia's government increasingly uh, leftist and the perceived threat of communist takeover, the rebels thought it would be a, a good match, them and the uh, KMT. They uh, they make contact and they get to talk to the ROC uh, intelligence leaders. Zhang Jingguo, um, he, he gives his support. The ROC are going to give arms, uh, weapons, ammunition, the use of a couple of planes and military advisors, pilots. Seems generous. Very greedy, in fact, because there's a price tag and okay. uh, it's, uh, it's high. For the arms, they're asking 4 million US dollars. And it's a ripoff for, for what they're getting. I mean, some of these guns are basically uh, rejects. Japanese World War II bolt-action rifles. Uh, but a, a freighter is dispatched from Taiwan uh, full of them. And uh, there are some flights by Foshing Airlines planes from Taipei. Okay. So when the CIA turned up, they must have been surprised to see the ROC nationalists already there. Called them thieves and uh, got them to move to uh, another Air Force field. Uh, <laughs> 
Okay. The CIA probably uh, personally knew the ROC pilots and uh, spooks because they uh, they also operating out of Taipei Airport big time. Right. A lot of secret programs flying from there. There was that airline called Civil Aviation Transport headquartered mm-hmm. there as a front for covert uh, CIA operations all throughout Asia. And later it would be organized as Air America. Yes. And uh, this uh, Taiwanese uh, airline called uh, Foshing Airlines, uh, they're also operating out of Taipei Airport, uh, supplying island garrisons along the China coast, lots of runs to uh, Burma and the Golden Triangle. Very interesting. There are more Taiwan connections to history than one might think. And Mm. we've got uh, some cool aviation stories. Uh, John's been collecting them, but they're going to have to wait for their own episode. Thanks again for joining us on Formosa Files. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. Bye. Bye.